This is Richard Lloyd, and you're listening to the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. I've seen fire and I've seen rain, diggers. Christian Swain here, and I am going to take the rock and roll archaeologist hat off for the top of the show today. Yes, I am in the San Francisco headquarters of Pantheon Podcasts, but I need to talk a little uh, here before we get into this week's show. Some of you are aware because you've reached out. Uh, Maybe you saw me on TV giving several interviews or read articles where my name or uh, my band's name, Tin Man, was mentioned. If not, I'll let you know that on Sunday, July 28th at 5.41 p.m., my band Tin Man was on stage performing at the Gilroy Garlic Festival when a young man appeared just to the left of our stage with an assault rifle and began shooting at our audience. Three people were killed and 12 more were injured. It lasted less than one minute before the Gilroy police were able to neutralize the killer, at least enough to cause him to shoot himself. I can tell you um, it could have been a lot worse. Luckily, the shooter's gun appeared to jam for a moment, and the three officers with inferior firepower but greater training made all the difference. Otherwise, the damage would uh, more resemble uh, El Paso or Dayton, which happened less than one week later. Now, not to minimize the loss of even three young lives uh, or the others injured or what their families will have to live with forever, but just to call out the luck of our particular situation, if, if you can call it luck, but in comparison to so many other mass shootings, it's just the best word for it. All the band members are okay, um, but to explain how close we were, less than 50 feet, one of our trucks was in the backstage area and was shot up. Um, we just got all of our gear and cars back on Monday, August the 5th, because the area was a crime scene controlled by the FBI and other investigative agencies. And that's when we found the, uh, the truck, uh, um, and its damage. So everyone who professionally knows about these things, um, I guess your host, uh, your humble host here is now a survivor of a mass shooting. A club one does not want membership in, and a club that is growing by leaps and bounds these days. In less than a week after our horrific event, the carnage we witnessed had spread to other cities, El Paso and Dayton. Now, this is a music show, and I don't usually get too political. 
Sure, I am political and and am well-educated in such matters, though I keep my leanings mostly to myself and try not to be overt on this show. But I am a musician. I was on stage performing music when some asshole, for whatever reason, decided he wanted to make a statement at my expense. So, I think I have justification to retort. This excuse of using innocence in a festive mood, enjoying music to lay bare a hateful ideology, is disgusting, to say the least. Anyone who supports a hateful ideology and cheers random violence to achieve a political goal is also disgusting. So, if you are here listening and want to make excuses, first thing, go the fuck away. I don't want or need you. Next, at least in this country, we uh, have universally pointed the finger at a particular mainstream religion over some of its more radical members employing such tactics over the last 20 years. Uh, Those who espouse making a political argument by the barrel of a gun have largely been silenced or eliminated. The society completely engaged its resources and went to work after an attack so horrendous we just couldn't turn away. We joined together, including most of those who peacefully practiced said religion, and eliminated the threat Uh, like those three Gilroy officers did to my shooter. We must now do the same to those who internally infect our society with another brand of hate that have radical members employing mass violence to achieve political goals. So, let me call out the racists of America, or what some politely call white nationalists, or the alt-right, as the new Al-Qaeda or ISIS. The only difference is that it is not a foreign ideology creating carnage in our schools, malls, churches, and festivals, but a homegrown strain infecting larger and larger groups in America. If there is a finger to point at, for me, it is at them. They are the monsters, and they need to be cut out of the body and soul of this country. So, in many ways, this is far more insidious, and and therefore we as a society need to make an even more forceful stand than what we did over the last 20 years when dealing with what are called terrorist groups. And yes, For fuck's sake, more guns in the hands of untrained individuals is not going to reduce or eliminate this problem, but will only exacerbate it even more, especially weapons of war on our streets. Massive gun violence is a unique problem in the United States, and all the excuses that the gun lobby or its supporters like to use as deflection Uh, are found all over the globe without the added gun to the cocktail, which truly causes the bloodshed. Finally, 
Let me say that as much as I wish this was unique or that this particular individual was wicked or evil or mentally unstable, I'll politely tell you to fuck off because two more incidences happened in less than a week. And like terrorists before them, they are trying to cause political change. Period. We can't let them. We need to get them before they get us. Anyway, we as a band are processing. I obviously am processing. Uh, the community of Gilroy is processing. And we will all come back stronger. We will survive. But, as if you couldn't guess by now, I am angry. And all of us in this club, we didn't ask to join, are angry. And we, who are now marked as survivors, are asking for action. And I sure would like all of us to demand action on this sickened ideology that has too long been a factor in this country, as well as for sensible gun laws, for Christ's sakes. This is just ridiculous. We are in an epidemic of hate and violence, and we must come together to end it now. All right, enough of my personal issues this week. Let's get back to the show. I need to get back to the show. Let's introduce our guest properly. Rape me, rape me, my friend, rape me, rape me. Danny Goldberg is a legend. He is a PR legend through his work with Led Zeppelin. He's a label president legend with stints at Atlantic, Mercury, and Warners. He's even a legend writing about rock and roll, culture, and politics. You know, all the stuff we here at Rock and Roll Archaeology do. So getting a chance to talk with Danny Goldberg was pretty special. But... If press, I'd have to say where Danny's real legendary status sits atop so many others is as a manager. He managed both Bonnie Raitt to superstardom and Stevie Nicks' solo career in the 1980s. That alone would warrant his status as legendary manager. But of course, he also managed Nirvana. Now, we are in Albert Grossman and Brian Epstein's strata. From early 1991 until Kurt's death in 1994, Danny was on the inside helping to guide the band and mostly Kurt navigate the rarefied air of superstardom. Needless to say, it was not easy and given the end results, heartbreaking. 
Convinced to sign the band to a management contract by Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth, who Danny's company Gold Mountain Entertainment was also managing, a meeting was set, and the rest, as they say, is history. Nirvana had Danny move the band from indie sub-pop to Geffen's DGC label just before Nevermind was finished and released. And we all know what happened on September 24th, 1991, when that album hit record stores and changed music forever. From then, it was a rocket ride like none other. Well, maybe a few times in rock and roll history, maybe like Elvis or the Beatles. Yeah, that kind of territory. It should have been magnificent, and in many ways, to all those around at the time, it must have been mostly good and positive. But because we know how the story ends for Kurt Cobain, all those memories are clouded by what could have been. Danny kept quiet after Kurt's suicide. There was enough noise and chatter. The death by suicide by one of the biggest rock stars of the day was a massive story where most roads lead to hell of some sort. Ask poor Courtney Love about that. Nothing good could come from adding to the cacophony. But 25 years on, Danny Goldberg has now found time to write a book about his experience working with Cobain and the band. And I say that very definitively. With all deference to Chris and Dave, Kurt Cobain was Nirvana. The book is called Serving the Servant, Remembering Kurt Cobain. It's a very good book, and it's not just about Danny's recollections of the time. He sort of acts as the narrator as he goes on a journey from 25 years ago and tries to remember details, great and small. He exposes the immense humanity of Cobain that sometimes gets lost when you are considered the father of grunge or a child of punk. Danny is compassionate to Courtney Love and what she went through, uh, as well as the other two guys who had to endure all of this and then move on from tragedy. And he is honest about the craziness, the slips into madness caused mostly by heroin use, the dishonest actions of addicts, and of course, an inability to really help his friend, survivor's guilt. It's not a fun book. But it is filled with new insights and fond memories of Cobain, the band, and the age when grunge ruled the pop charts. What may be the last big moment of rock and roll. So, let's get to it. Diggers, I give you Danny Goldberg.
Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Danny Goldberg. How are you doing today? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for uh, for joining us uh, to discuss, um, you know, your current book, uh, Serving the Servant, Remembering Kurt Cobain. But, but before we dive into that, I have to give the diggers, uh, our audience, that may not know a better sense of you. you you've written several books, including uh, In Search of the Lost Chord, 1967, and The Hippie Idea, Bumping into Geniuses, My Life Inside the Rock and Roll Business, and How the Left Lost teen spirit and i and i believe your first uh inclination into music was as a journalist that's true i um i I, when i was um 18 after dropping out of college i got a clerical job at uh, at billboard uh, just so i could get my own apartment and i didn't really understand that there was a whole music business or what trade magazines were but the minute i found out that there were people that could get into concerts for free and get free records if they would just write their opinions about the music. That sounded like the job for, A for me. Job, huh? <laughs> so I, uh, I talked my way into uh, being able to do some of that for Billboard. And, and, you know, once you have a byline, you exist in a certain circles. And I, I, I uh, over the next few years, I was able to make a living as a, as a so-called rock uh, journalist. I was, you know, I was pretty young, and I was a lot more interested in meeting uh, meeting girls than I was in writing. So uh, I, I didn't uh, I didn't become a successful writer, but I had a lot of things published. I wrote some reviews for Rolling Stone, and you know, was managing editor of Circus Magazine, and that was kind of my way into the business. And uh, you know, when I realized I was unlikely to get hired by the New York Times to be their rock critic, I I, uh, I shifted gears into into the business side. Uh, and became a publicist, and I, I was uh, I was better suited to that in those in those years, and you know from that got into the music business, uh, you know as a manager and then a label executive and so forth. Yeah, yeah. So you you actually you did work with uh, mega manager of the day Albert Grossman, uh, who was caring for the likes of Bob Dylan and Janis Joplin, right? Well, he had, Dylan had had stopped working with Albert by the time I got my job with him, but Albert Grossman was legendary in the business. First of all, he still had the band and Janis Joplin, and plus he was in that great uh, documentary, Don't Look Back, where you can yeah. see him negotiating fees for Dylan and being in on all the in-jokes. So I idolized him. Uh, so I worked for him twice, once as an employee for his music publishing company in like 70 or 71. Didn't really, just met him a couple of times. And then in the in the late 70s, uh, you know, I had a PR company and got to know him better because his label, Bearsville Records, became one of my clients. And, and he's definitely, to me, one of the great, uh, uh, you know, role models as, as somebody who work with great artists and who changed the power equation between artists and record companies and promoters and who had his own uh, kind of uh, vision about how to do things, even though he was the musician himself. And, uh, yeah, I'm really lucky I got to know So a bit of an early mentor for you. Yeah. And then, as you mentioned, uh, PR work, uh, most famously for Led Zeppelin, that turns into vice president of their Swan Song Records Company. And boy, could we spend several hours talking just about this. But 
I don't want to devolve into a Zeppelin conversation, much to the chagrin of some of our listeners right now, but I, I might ask how running an artist's label, uh, and perhaps the biggest artist label in the world at that time, impacted you. Uh, especially a man born of the hippie ethic and now thrown into the arena rock explosion of the biggest band in the world at the time. Well, like I said earlier, I um, I couldn't quite make it as a journalist, but did get a PR job working for a show business company called Soldiers and Roskin. And they had a lot of, you know, Barbara Streisand, Frank Sinatra, a lot of Broadway shows, Ringling Brothers Circus. They wanted a long hair guy to do rock and roll because that was this growing part of the business. And, and after, within a few months of being there, Led Zeppelin became a client. I was 22 when I first met Zeppelin and their manager, Peter Grant, and talking of mentors, he really was my primary mentor as a manager because I, I worked, uh, Peter then hired me to work full time for what became Swan Song Records. And, um, you know, he was somebody also who had this belief that the artists were, uh, you know, what made the business go. And he was a fierce uh, advocate for artists. Uh, you know, he, he had a very different background than me. He had been a professional wrestler. He came from <laughs> yes, yeah. Cockney, London. He was physically intimidating. Uh, you know, he knew a lot of uh, British gangsters. I had none of those qualities. You know, I came from this sort of, you know, uh, intellectual Jewish family. But, but his commitment to artists is the thing that really galvanized me and set an example of how to behave in, in, in the business. And he was really, really smart. He renegotiated the whole economics of touring, you know, to where it, it, it had been uh, for decades where the promoters were getting like almost half of the profits from shows. Peter invented what was called the 90-10 yeah, deal, 90 which yeah. so today there are artists that get even more than 90%. In those days, it was a radical improvement of compensation for artists. And similarly, you know, when I walked into Atlantic Records with Peter, I mean, he told them what he wanted. It wasn't the other way around. So so that was really, um, that, that was an amazing opportunity. Uh, the band, obviously, was the biggest band in the world then. My main role was doing publicity for them. I talked to him and he had a title of vice president of Swan Song. He was the president, There was and there was a lawyer, and that was it. There were no, you know. <laughs> that was the, those were the employees. Atlantic Records really provided all of the day-to-day services and activities that a record company did in those days and Swan Song was kind of an A&R vehicle uh, but, but I did do the publicity and so I was still kind of a publicist but with a fancier title and I got to know something about radio promotion and helping the developing artists in those days. Bad Company was a developing artist that was the first uh, uh, release on Swan Song Records was Bad Company's first album, Bad Co. That's right. And so I, I got to help them put their first American tour together and things like that. So that was an incredible education. Uh, and it kind of, uh, to this day, people still ask me to tell Led Zeppelin stories. Oh, I can't imagine. Uh, we would gladly have you back to talk about Led Zeppelin stories. But like the byline that you uh, you got kind of recognized in certain circles uh, in your early journalistic career, now you have the, the same sort of cachet in the record business. And uh, you go on to uh, work for several labels. You, you had your own, Modern Records, which famously released the Stevie Nicks solo records of the 1980s. And there's a whole nother rabbit hole we could... Could dig into but won't today which then puts you in the corner offices of mercury warner's 
in Atlantic at one time or another, right? Yes. I mean, because I started so young when I was 18, I've had decades of of being in the music business. So so when you do it into one um, conversation, it sounds like a lot of different things, but it took place literally over 50 years. Yeah. The sequence was I went from working for Zeppelin and having my own PR company, then was able to start that label that you mentioned that put out Stevie's first couple of solo albums. Uh, you know, then had an, uh, the management company that eventually handled Nirvana, which is you know what this new book is about. And then after that, I ran several record companies over a period of about a dozen years. Uh, first Atlantic, then briefly Warner's, then Mercury, and then I was uh, I, I was able to start a label called Artemis Records that uh, had four yeah. or five years before it went under in the early two thousands as the uh, oh, the record company itself fell apart right yeah well the digital revolution is something yeah. i certainly didn't see coming neither did the people running the big record companies True. and uh, i was not a, we were not able to survive that but we had five really good you know put out some good records in that period of time and then i started the company i have now a small management company called gold village so that's sort of quickly 50 years but um, six of those were, were in uh, big corporations running corporate divisions of majors and I'm so glad I had that experience it's not been the main thing I've done but who have had those jobs and getting a sense of how things look through the prism of being in a big company I think really um, really helps me uh, to this day and it was sort of an itch I wanted to scratch and I got to scratch it yeah so now journalist manager label president uh, did I miss one? Oh, yes. I believe you were CEO of Air America for a short stint as well. And you co-directed and produced the No Nukes film based on the famous concert. Um, yeah. So would it be fair to characterize your experience of doing pretty much all the jobs in rock and roll that didn't involve holding an instrument? Well, I never had the talent to be a record producer. Uh, those are certainly incredibly important people. They don't hold instruments, but they have the musical uh, talent to oversee the making of a record. That's nothing I had the talent to do and never did. And then, you know, there's uh, booking agencies, concert promoters, music publishers. I never had any of those jobs. So there's a lot of different aspects of the of the of the music business. I have been able to work in in several of them, but uh, I wouldn't say all of them. No, no, no one's worked in all of them. Well, there's still time. I, I think you could probably still find other things uh, as you go through uh, the the rest of your career because you're you're still in the middle of it. So in 50 years, in the in the middle of this 50 year career so far, uh, from 1983 to 1992, you headed up Gold Mountain Entertainment where you helped guide the careers of Bonnie Raitt, uh, another rabbit hole we could go and will avoid today, the Allman Brothers, Sonic Youth, Hole, and most importantly for today's discussion, Nirvana. Tell us about the day that longtime cohorts Kurt Cobain and Chris Novoselic and brand new drummer of the band Dave Grohl walked into your office seeking management. Well, it was in the um, latter part of 1990. I, I don't have notes of exactly what day it was, but it was either either uh, late October, early November, as far as I can figure out. And um, 
Uh, at that time, Gold Mountain was a company, like you said, I'd been running for several years, and it had become a decent mid-sized management company. We had about 25 people working for us and a few dozen clients, and had just come off a real high with Bonnie Raitt winning the, the several Grammys, including Album of the Year, just the year before. And I had realized, by that time I was 40, I, you know, and I had realized that I was out of touch with this next generation of rock and roll, uh, the artists that were coming up through the indie punk scene that developed in America in the 1980s. So I hired a younger guy named John Silva, who today is an extremely successful manager, who knew that world. He knew all the fanzines and the seven inches and you know, was of that generation. And um, he had Red Cross and uh, another couple of artists, but we knew we needed something with a higher profile of credibility in this new wave of, of rock and roll. And we were lucky enough to sign Sonic Youth. And Sonic Youth uh, was, uh, was uh, extremely influential in the indie world and in the uh, punk world. Oh, yeah, of the, of the mid to late 80s, yeah. They were revered by the press. They had a following all over the Western world, all over Europe and, and Australia and, and North America, where they could play to, you know, 500 people a night who loved them. And they had a history of, of identifying new talent and having them be their opening act. And a lot of artists got their record deals because they opened for Nirvana. And I just really loved Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon, who were the lead guitarist and lead singer, uh, and also a couple of Sonic Youth. They were so brilliant, such Renaissance people. They understood a lot about the art world, the fashion world, literature, as well as having this intense uh, connection to Indian punk rock. And uh, I didn't usually like to take on brand new artists because managers get paid based on percentage of what the artists make, and new artists usually can't pay you anything the first year. So Thurston called me one day, though, and said, look, I know you don't like new acts because I passed on somebody that he liked a few months earlier, but, you know, this band Nirvana is the best band that I've seen in years, and, and you don't want to miss them. So I completely trusted him, and so I agreed he would meet with them and predisposed to want to manage them based solely on his recommendation. I hadn't even listened to their indie record, Bleach, which today is a legendary classic first album, album yeah. classic by Nirvana. Then it had been out for a year or so, and it sold 30,000 and had a buzz in the subculture of college radio and the press, but by no means was not on MTV or any right. of the right. commercial radio or anything like that. And, um, yeah, as you say, they came in. Grohl had just joined the band, I think, the month before. I think he'd only done one or two gigs with them. Yeah, they had gone through quite a few drummers uh, up until then. Yeah, and Kurt, uh, you know, I, I see Nirvana through the prism of Kurt. He wrote the songs. He was the lead singer. He was the lead guitar player. And in my experience with the band, he made all of the uh, decisions. Uh, that's no disrespect to the other two guys who collectively created Nirvana, and obviously Dave Grohl's had an unbelievable career with the Foo Fighters and doing a lot of other things. But in those days, it was really Kurt's band. Oh, I think that's uh, accepted history. You know, you know, the way I perceived yeah. it. Yeah. And, and he wanted a new drummer. He knew what they needed. And, and they went through a lot of drummers because Kurt was not satisfied until he found Dave Grohl. And Dave was definitely a better drummer than anyone they had before and that that was the last creative element he needed and then he wanted the business element because although he appreciated the fact that some pop records the indie label based in seattle had put out bleach and that there was a community 
around these indie labels that he respected and enjoyed being part of up to a point, he wanted to be really successful. He certainly didn't want to compromise his music or art or image or anything he did in his day-to-day -day life, but he wanted to be successful. He had this vision that became Nirvana. It didn't happen because of any other reason except for Kurt's uh, clarity and commitment to it and his talent in executing it. So, uh, you know, I think he met with us for the same reason that I met with them, which was that Sonic Youth had told him we were good guys. We had uh, worked with them on this last year when they made their first major uh, label record called Goo on Geth Records. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had a meeting that was maybe an hour. Uh, you know, the first question I asked was, do you want to stay on Sub Pop? And Kurt said no. And that's when I realized that, number one, that he was the boss, and number two, that he wanted to be successful, because not every artist from the punk scene had that kind of motivation. And, um, you know, we were their manager after that day. And by this time, uh, Bleach had created enough of a buzz that uh, four or five major labels were interested in Nirvana. And they decided to get a manager first before deciding on a record deal. And, uh, you know, it seemed clear to us, even in the first meeting, that Gaffin was probably the right place for them. They had this imprint called VGC that they set up specifically to address the same audience that I was interested in, this new wave of punk fans that were going to be the next generation to define what rock and roll was, because every, every generation defines what the popular music is. They don't just yep. go along with whatever their older brothers and sisters like. So within a week or two, we had made a deal with, with Geffen to, to be on DGC. Same A&R guy, Gary Gersh, that had signed Sonic Youth. And you know, it was a very good deal by the standards of the time for a new band. And it was uh, one of the key elements was that it, it, all the creative decisions and control uh, resided with Nirvana. And, you know, Geffen was willing to make deals like that. And a lot of the labels were by that time, but certainly Geffen had that their culture permitted that, and that was the only way that these kinds of artists were going to sign to one of these majors. And, uh, you know, and we're off to the races, you know, a few months later, they were... Uh, In the studio, uh, preparing for uh, Nevermind. Well, they, they spent months and months in a rehearsal studio before they went to the recording studio. You know, the, the, a big chunk of the money from the so-called recording fund was used to pay for rehearsals and for apartments for them. In, uh, in LA um, so they could rehearse. Kurt really believed in rehearsing. Uh, you know, it's, he has this image of being kind of a slacker and there's all these photos of him where he looks stoned and kind of goofing on the whole idea of, uh, of celebrity and all that. But, but when it came to his art, he had a um, rigorous work ethic and rehearsed day after day after day so that when they went into the studio some months later, they had it. Uh, you know, Butch Vig, the producer of Nevermind, said he just couldn't believe they had every arrangement down. You know, uh, that album was recorded very quickly, not because of budgetary reasons, but because they, they had been rehearsing for so many months. So what I hear is that, and, and this comes up in the book over and over again, I, I think best uh, articulated from uh, Chris Novus. Novoselic, who says that Kurt in, in most everything was a planner. Yeah, he was. And you can see this if you read his journals. You know, uh, at some point about 10 years ago, Courtney um, got somebody to edit and publish uh, highlights of his journals. And I, uh, I reread them when I was writing this book. And it was really, uh, you learned so much from it. I mean, it was so clear what his vision was. And um, 
he was a real life genius. What Nirvana was came right out of his brain, every aspect of it, and uh, took a lot of work to accomplish it. And he did the work and he made sure the people around him did the work. So he had a lot of demons, a lot of complicated uh, parts of his personality and could be uh, angry, could be depressed, could be sarcastic. But uh, when it came to his art, he was very, very uh, clear, had this crystalline clarity about what he wanted. and. And that body of work uh, is a result of that uh, planning and that uh, work ethic. So I, I enjoy how the book is almost as if you're narrator and there's a Greek chorus uh, brought in throughout with impressions by numerous others who knew Kurt at the time and were also reflecting like yourself 25 years on. What, was that intentional or is that just how the book ended up? That was the only way I could figure out how to write an interesting book because I have precious memories that I wanted to share and I had some files, but you know, um, there's so much I, I've forgotten and talking to other, I think 40 people I spoke to for it, uh, there were about six or seven people I would have liked to have spoken to who didn't want to participate, who the pain is too raw or whatever, fuse from 25 years ago. But but the vast majority of people were, were happy to talk about Kurt because he meant so much to the people that knew him, not only to his fans, he was very much loved by the people that actually knew him as well. And I thought by having those conversations, firstly, it would help trigger my memories and that I could also um, broaden out the narrative by including like Amy Finnerty, who was the person at MTV that was the closest person to Nirvana, who talked the, the, the channel into playing Smells Like Teen Spirit originally, and who Kurt and Courtney always made welcome at Nirvana shows, you know, was present at certain times that I wasn't there. And uh, similarly with some of the other people at the label, some of the people that worked with me, some of the record producers, all the record producers, well, not all of them, but, but the, you know, uh, Butch Vig, who produced uh, uh, Nevermind, and uh, Scott who remixed uh, In Utero, and who, who produced the Unplugged record. Uh, and uh, Chris, uh, who is Kurt's oldest friend, yeah. friend who, who stayed with him for the whole journey, Courtney, uh, and, and some others. So I just wanted to tell the story the best I could within the time frame I had, within the people who wanted to talk about it and uh, you know uh, I, I thought it just made a, a better book than if I had just only stuck with my own memories. I loved it. I, I got a much broader scope and and detail of uh, you know who this man was uh, and why he was so important. As far as lasting influence, you, you make a case early on using Spotify as data point that shows the song Smells Like Teen Spirit is at the top streams from the band's contemporaries. By the way, it's now almost a half, it's over a half a billion streams uh, as of today. So, uh, you know, why do you think a band would just three albums of original material still garner such adoration? I think it's because the songwriting is so good, is, is the number one reason. Uh, and he's also, you know, one of the great singers that rock and roll produced. His voice is, you know, it's him within five seconds of hearing it. Uh, and there are just a handful of artists like that. Look, Jimi Hendrix only made a few records. Uh, you know, and we still care about him because Janice, he was such, an, such an innovator. Yeah. Janis Joplin. You know, there's a number of artists who were able to make an impact over a relatively short period of time, but whose uh, work uh, continues to be 
relevant to younger people and is remembered by the original fans with an intensity, you know, greater than some of their contemporaries. So I just think Kurt as a writer tuned in to certain aspects of loneliness, teenage angst, of what it was to be a sensitive, creative person in a world that didn't always reward sensitivity. It spoke to people that wasn't just a product of his time. You know, in the day, people talked about trends and is grunge a trend and is uh, the Seattle scene a trend? And, you know, there are things that are trends that quickly become passe, but great art doesn't become passe. And I think we've seen this with certain artists over the decades. Uh, Bob Marley uh, comes to mind, uh, John Lennon. Uh, and I think Kurt is on that short list of artists whose work was deep enough that, you know, transcended just the people that were in high school when those records came out. And, uh, you know, I see younger people wearing your bun t-shirts. I mean, obviously a 25 year old uh, career is not going to have the same uh, intensity of, you know, a current uh, hip hop artist to a young person. But in, in, the, in the canon of rock and roll, I think Kurt's body of work is up there in the top tier that continues to mean something to people, you know, uh, even though uh, decades have passed and, uh, you know, the, the different uh, politicians and different uh, technology and, you know, all sorts of things are different. The inner experience of being a human being is not that different. And that's what he wrote about. Yeah, it, it seems there's a formula with decades of perspective now to look back on that I would say is, uh, you know, punk attitude with uh, the indie rock verse choruses of the day, Beatlesque melodies and uh, disaffected world weary lyrics. Well, uh, I can't argue with any of those things. Um, he certainly had multiple musical influences. He was rooted in the punk culture and uh, cared deeply about a lot of the values of the punk culture at that time, certainly politically. Uh, you know, he was a feminist, he hated uh, macho behavior, he uh, honored the punk uh, artists that had inspired him and made sure always to wear their t-shirts when he was photographed and have them be the opening act on Nirvana shows to, uh, to celebrate that uh, rebellious, you know, anti-establishment culture. But his musical taste was wider and he did love pop music. He loved, as you said, the Beatles. He, he, you know, when I talked to Chris about just when they were in the van doing the early Nirvana tours, he said, you know, half of the music they'd play was punk and the other half could be the Smithereens or ABBA or, or the Beatles, you know, or certain metal artists like Black Sabbath. So musically, he had this uh, idea of how to be rooted in punk but use some of the elements of both pop and heavy metal that would connect to a much bigger audience than punk ever had while retaining the cultural stance. His lyrics were very impressionistic and poetic, and yeah. I think some of them were world-weary, some of them are very romantic, some of them are angry. I hesitate to try to characterize them in any one way, but they certainly had a, a, an intensity and a depth to them that have stood the test of time. You know, he's not a literal storyteller, and he's not somebody who writes much in the first person. You don't hear a lot of Nirvana lyrics with the word I a few times, but uh, not too much. Uh, but he had a way of conveying, um, you know, sort of a, a unsentimental attitude about what was the truth of his 
feeling about things. Uh, but that included some sweetness. It wasn't all dark. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about Kurt's moral, ethical, and, and even political philosophy, even though it wasn't overt in the songs. I knew he was a proponent of feminism and uh, LBGTQ rights, uh, but your book reminds me uh, about how serious he and the band were. Of course, you know, let's face it, Nova Selleck is known today more for his activism than perhaps his music. Um, but this is quite counter to what was happening in music in the late 80s. He he wasn't much of a fan of cock rock, right? Oh, no, he had contempt for it. Uh, you know, he even said he liked musically certain aspects of Zeppelin and Aerosmith. He just hated the macho lyrics uh, that he couldn't relate to. And he grew up, uh, you know, in a logging town. He was something like Aberdeen, five, six, yeah. five, Aberdeen. He was five, six, five, seven, physically small, uh, easily bullied, uh, sensitive guy, had gay friends, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, had real contempt for bullies and macho men. And that comes out in a lot of the lyrics and it came out in a lot of his interviews. Yeah, mo most famously, the Advocate I interview that he did. The Advocate interview was certainly a milestone. Uh, at a time when he wasn't doing too many interviews, but it came up repeatedly. You know, he was really just going through all the interviews he did, which was another part of the research for the book, was just so incredible because, you know, most artists, when they do interviews, uh, repeat themselves a lot. I, by the way, so do most people who write books. And, you you know, you yeah, end up, the canned answers, you know, are going to work. Right? You know, and he um, had some of those, but... He had this incredible ability, along with all of his other talents, to be in the moment with each person he was talking to, and he had this consciousness of who was going to be reading or listening to it, and he did not repeat himself a lot. It was like kind of an ongoing uh, mosaic that he was building of what his um, persona was going to be in the world, you know, kind of the way that John Lennon and Dylan did it, you know. Uh, he, he was very consistent in talking about his feelings uh, against uh, misogyny and macho behavior in, in general. Um, but he loved that advocate interview, and, and um, you know, that was something that he uh, talked about as one of the highlights for him of dealing with the media. Um, okay, so you're now managing them. Uh, they have uh, one album, an independent, Bleach. They're about to prepare for a new album. You, they've been in the, the rehearsal studio uh, honing the songs. Uh, they work with Butch Vig and produce this body of work. I'm sure you got to hear it before all of us did uh, on September 24th, 1991, right? Oh, yes, yes. I, I heard it at different stages, uh, you know, like, like what happens when you work with an artist. I didn't go to the studio that I remember. I don't love recording studios. I don't have the patience to listen to a million attempts to get a good drum sound or the punch-ins. <laughs> uh, now I don't now have, we know why you're not a producer. Okay. <laughs> I don't have the talent. I can't hear the way they can hear. Yeah. You know, it takes a certain God-given talent to be able to be useful in those situations. But I heard uh, rough versions of it, and you know some of the songs uh, had been played live in front of audiences in L.A. He was trying them out, uh, and uh, and then and then heard the rough mixes, and then the first mixes, which Butch did, uh, and uh, and then um, uh, you know Gary Gersh, who was the A&R guy that signed them, uh, called this meeting that John Silva and I and the band went to at Geffen, where he said, look. Uh, I really think you should consider a remix of this, that the voice was not popping as much, nor were the drums, and um, 
the idea was to have Andy Wallace, who would work mostly with metal bands. He'd been a Slayer, yeah, Slayer. Right. right? Yeah, to do a remix, and uh, and Kurt said, "Well, let's try it." You know, he wasn't committing to go with the other mixes, but he was fine with having Andy Wallace try to do it. And once he heard Andy Wallace's mixes, Kurt immediately knew they were what he wanted, and they were better. And and, and so, yeah, I heard different iterations of the record after it was. Mostly done. Okay, so I'm sure you didn't have an inkling of what was coming. Uh, you probably felt that, oh, we, we're going to have a successful uh, run here uh, with with the songs. I mean, there you know, there's obvious pop melodies in uh, uh, in several of the songs, which would you know instantly become singles. But I think my question is, you know, why do you think a, a little known band from the Northwest with only a single album under their belt could change music almost instantaneously on a scale not seen since perhaps the Beatles in the British invasion days. Well, obviously part of it was timing. Uh, it was kind of a pent up yearning among younger people for a new chapter in, in music that happens every few years. And this was the moment then where, where the, so there was a certain category of rock and roll that, um, MTV was playing a lot. And to just contextualize this, in the early 90s, MTV was overwhelmingly the dominant connector between American audiences and uh, and music. You know, they were at their yeah. peak of influence. Yeah. And the radio stations were still very important, but they were local. MTV was national, so uh, sometimes a record would get played first on a few radio stations and then get onto MTV. But MTV was was the main event, that was the big, big thing. And they had popularized the number of bands that, that, that because this was still relatively uh, new into the music video era. Uh, they were called literally hair bands because a lot of them, uh, the lead singers had very long hair and they'd be like a fan off camera with their hair <laughs> blowing, you know, while they're singing. And a lot of them uh, obviously spent a lot of time at the gym and would wear cutoffs and you know, it was nothing wrong all, with it. But, all crafted for the female audience. But there was a wave of them. Um, you know, there was Aerosmith that made a comeback. Guns N' Roses kind of was the biggest. And then there were a number of other bands like Winger and White Lion and Poison. And collectively, they were often referred to as hair bands. And musically, they, they were kind of a hybrid between old school pop and rock. Because they would have some guitar solos. Like a Zeppelin-esque sort of thing, yeah. But not even, not anywhere as heavy as Zeppelin, you know, more poppy, more, you know, and um, again, certainly nothing wrong with that kind of music, but it was um, Vacuous, shallow, uh, it was shallow, shallow yeah. to some of the audience, and you could feel these these uh, new types of music emerging, R.E.M. was emerging, Jane's Addiction was emerging, and, uh, and, and, and so the timing was right. And then the quality of the song, you know, it's like any of these artists that emerge and become big, uh, it starts with one song. You know, the Beatles was I Want to Hold Your Hand. Right. Uh, Bob Dylan is like a Rolling Stone. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, uh, Jimi Hendrix, I think Foxy Lady in my memory is the one. And then suddenly through that song, this door opens and there's this new talent that's depending on how talented they are. So, Smells Like Teen Spirit was obviously that song for Nirvana. It was a song that we all knew was a great song. Uh, we didn't know it was going to be a pop song, but we knew it was going to be kind of a huge alternative rock, anthemic kind of a song, and that was the song to lead with. And then it ended up exceeding our wildest expectations, uh, in part because 
the video was so brilliant. And the uh, the song ended up becoming not only big on college radio, not only big on the alternative rock radio stations that were emerging in certain cities, but uh, became actually a pop song and also got played on heavy metal stations. It was the sort of appealed to the so many different audiences all at the same time. Uh, and, uh, you know, it made the, the people in the media and MTV and radio stations realize, you know, there was an audience for this other kind of rock and roll. And in the wake of Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains emerge the next, within the next couple of years, Green Day and Blink-182 and The Offspring. And a lot of the so-called hair bands um, oh, receded, receded in popularity. I mean, you know, a couple of them, you know, Guns N' Roses and Aerosmith are, became classic rock bands that still matter, you know, that still matter. But a lot of the other ones became uh, passe very quickly. That's what happens when a new wave of energy comes in. Hip-hop did the same thing to a lot of rock bands a year or two later. Um, you know, it was just, uh, he was that good, you know. Uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit was that good a song, and uh, they don't come along too often, but when they do come along, uh, they can they can change a lot of the uh, culture. So there was a yearning for a, kind of a return to maybe some rock and roll with a conscience. Yeah, I think rock and roll with a little more depth. It wasn't only about partying and getting laid, uh, with a little more uh, value system, a, a little uh, some of those 60s values but in the context of something that was culturally relevant in the 90s, you know, not a, wasn't imitating the 60s, it was musically completely different, but some of the values uh, reminded me a lot of the 60s and the idealism, and there was an idealism that was part of kind of Nirvana's um, place in the world, and that was, uh, all three of the guys felt that, but it was certainly integral to the way Kurt uh, saw himself and saw his uh, mission. So uh, I, I want to go back to the 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 remix of uh, of the uh, the album Nevermind because um, I I can still remember the first time I heard Smells Like Teen Spirit, and and how different this was and and what a game changer it was. I, I distinctly remember the first time I heard it going, okay, uh, this is the things are going to be different, and it reminded me of hearing like the first Van Halen tracks in 1978. Um, so there, there was like this reality day before and then another reality in pop music the day after. Well, it took a little longer than a day, but uh, Not certainly, much. <laughs> certainly within weeks. Yeah. Uh, certainly within weeks. It, it moved very, very quickly. When people heard it, the uh, phone requests at the radio stations happened right away. And I think originally Geffen pressed uh, 50,000 pieces, which was a lot for a punk band. Their Bleach only sold 30,000, but those 50,000 sold out incredibly quickly. And, you know, in those days, the definition of a gold record was 500,000 sales, and uh, Nevermind was certified gold three weeks after it came out. So within those three weeks, they went from being a college radio cult band to being, you know, one of the biggest uh, new bands, you know, in the, in, in the world. And it didn't only happen in the United States. It happened virtually simultaneously in England, France, Germany, Scandinavia, Australia, Japan, Canada. The same phenomenon, the same impact that Nirvana made uh, here happened in, in uh, you know, kind of all the parts of the world where rock and roll was part of the culture. Yeah. 
Yeah. So uh, reading the book, I, I kind of, as I went through and digested it, uh, I, I started to look back in rock and roll history. And would it be fair to say that maybe Kurt seemed to echo uh, a young John Lennon uh, at the time? Well, um, he definitely admired John Lennon. There's no question about that. First of all, Nirvana loved the Beatles. I mean, it was like this guilty pleasure. They would call it the B word, you know, um, <laughs> because it wasn't exactly cool for punk bands to talk about the Beatles. You know, there was a certain uh, revulsion against 60s hippie culture in the punk culture because, you know, the people just get sick of older people trying to tell them what's cool. But there were elements of it, and the Beatles being Exhibit A, that, that continued, again, transcended their times. And, and, and all of those guys in Nirvana loved the Beatles. And, and, and Kurt uh, particularly uh, admired Lennon, both, I think, for his um, you know, artistry, his attitude, uh, his own feminism. I mean, again, what John and Yoko went through in terms of the way people viewed that relationship foreshadowed some of what Kurt and Courtney went through in the media. And, uh, you, you know, uh, there's no question that that was somebody that Kurt looked up to and admired greatly. So let's bring Courtney into the conversation here. So there's been so much shit said about Kurt and Courtney's, uh, Courtney Love's relationship that it was refreshing to read your account, which really just seems to be a typical but intense loving relationship with uh, with two people who seem meant for each other, albeit two damaged souls working out their turmoils in an artistic format that requires heightened intensity while becoming a couple in a Beatlemania moment with the added ingredient of heroin abuse. Is, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that's a pretty good assessment. Uh, I don't know if I can improve on that. Uh, you know, I say right early in the book, you know, there's sort of people who like Courtney and people who don't like Courtney in, in, the, in the world around Nirvana then and now. And I am I'm always right away was in the camp of liking her. I recognized right away that he was in love with her and I connected with her personally at an early stage and ended up being one of, you know, we managed Hole also yeah. for, for a time and made their major label deal as well. So, you know, look, he was in love with her. There's no question about it. Uh, he uh, defended her uh, vigorously when anyone, uh, you know, criticized her or was mean to her. And uh, that's the reality of it. That's that's who he married and who he was in love with. On the other hand, like you said, they both did have drug problems and that brought out a lot of uh, dark energy and craziness. And, uh, you know, I, I'm an anti-heroine uh, and I wish he hadn't uh, done it. But, uh, you, you know, there's no question that that was the love of his life, mother of his daughter. And, uh, you know, he was quite outspoken about how much uh, she meant to him. So it's not just me saying it. He said it hundreds of times. Yeah, I grew up uh, in the uh, school of acceptance uh, that uh, Yoko Ono broke up the Beatles only to, you know, dive deeper into uh, the history and find that that was ludicrous. You know, there's there's some comparisons to uh, Courtney and, and Kurtz and John and Yoko's relationship. And, and I, I think unfairly she gets blamed for a lot of the end result, uh, which is, you know, turns out horribly. 
or that, you know, a lot gets bantered about that Courtney's career is dependent on Kurtz or, or built upon it. But as you correctly point out, Hole was already a fully formed band before Kurt and Courtney were an item. Um, in fact, I think most of Pretty on the Inside, the first Hole album, was written and recorded before their romance ever began. So, well, some of it was written. It was not recorded before oh. the romance mm-hmm. began, but, but some of it was written. And, and they released already a first album. Now, within a few days of each other, I think, right? Pretty on the Inside was absolutely recorded uh, and I think released before the romance started. Yeah. Live Through This yes. was the album that came yeah. out that, after, after Kurt died. Yes. And that was the big breakthrough commercially on Geffen on the major label. But the indie record was, yeah, that, they were on the map. Oh, they weren't a big band. They were a cult band, but they they toured and were in the same uh, coming emerging from the same culture from which uh, Nirvana emerged. Yeah, the Yoko thing. People definitely made that comparison, and Kurt and Courtney would joke about it and call themselves John Yoko sometimes. <laughs> and I, I always admired Yoko Ono. I know there are people that don't, and that whatever they think about the Beatles or whatever. I love the early Beatles, but I also love the work that John Lennon did when he got together with Yoko Ono, and I don't think you'd have uh, songs like Instant Karma or yeah. Give Peace a Chance without Yoko. Yeah. Um, I just, or Imagine, you know, I just don't think those songs exist if John doesn't meet. Yoko, and I think there's certain um, songs that Kurt wrote that I think were informed by his relationship with Courtney. Certainly, Heart Shaped Box is one of them. So, you know, I think that um, complicated people, um, controversial, uh, definitely both had drug problems, but uh, uh, I think Courtney is definitely someone who's had a meaningful career of her own. Uh, There's only one Kurt Cobain, only one Nirvana, but tremendously influential band. I think dozens of women became artists inspired by Courtney. You know, those lived through this was, uh, you know, critics number one album of the year in both Rolling Stone and Spin the year it came out. Uh, subsequent whole albums all have good songs on them. Courtney goes on to, you know, get the, you know, be in the People versus Larry Flint and other movies and, you know, is a significant creative force in her own right. I, again, I, I wouldn't say Anybody that I ever met is as talented as Kurt is, including Courtney, but she is a, a significant, significant talent. Uh, he recognized it, but more to the point, her fans recognized it. And her place, uh, she's not finished. She's going to do great things in, in the years to come as well. But um, I, I have a hard time with people who can't admit that she's genuinely talented in her own right. The, the uh, body of work is admirable. Yeah, it speaks for itself. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, she also exhibits uh, talent in a, in a completely different discipline, and that's uh, yeah. you know, her acting, People versus Larry Flint, most famously. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, I just think, uh, you know, a lot of people try to conflate that, oh, listen to Hole, she's stealing from Nirvana or Kurt. And I, and I just uh, I don't think that's fair because I just think both bands were swimming in the same alternative waters and therefore have common attributes. Uh, and you could apply those to many of the other bands that came out of the era with similar sounds, especially looking back now 25 years on. It's probably a little hard to see uh, at the time, but now, you know, you can kind of put those those bands together that came out of that uh, class of that uh, early 90s uh, rock scene. Uh, and Hole's just one of them, along with Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, and many others. Well, I think, look, there's no question that the Curry Courtney were living together when a lot of this was written. 
I, I'm sure musically he had some influence. How could he not? He had reinvented this way of doing punk that also included, like you said earlier, melodies. And as sure as I can be, without having been in the room, that Courtney wrote those lyrics. They are totally different from Nirvana lyrics. They're very personal lyrics. They're obviously written by the same person who wrote the lyrics on her subsequent albums. And, uh, you know, you know I, I think she's an incredible lyricist, you know. Uh, so I, I think Kurt had an influence, and I actually think it was a good influence on the music. But uh, lyrically, and in terms of the persona that Courtney, that's all hers, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, nowadays you have songs that are, you know, made by 25 people. So uh, it's no surprise that you would play, uh, you know, your songs to your closest collaborator in life and gain uh, some insight that might make a a song a little better or corrections or, or what have you. But to put the spin that some people have that, you know, she owes so much of her career to Kurt, I just, you know, I think it's unfair. And you, you bring that up over in the book that, again, shows that, no, you know, these were two separate people that came together because of their mutual interests, their commonalities, um, but they both still had their own separate uh, musical careers out there. Yeah, listen, I mean, she definitely became a lot more famous because she married Kurt Cobain at the peak of his stardom. I mean, there's no denying that. She wouldn't deny that either. I mean, that's just a fact. But her talent existed before and after that relationship and is a formidable talent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you you bring up this in the book and, and it's the Vanity Fair piece that seems to be an inflection point where things start to spin out of control and it proves hard to get everything back into equilibrium. Is that how you saw it at the time? Well, um, it was a, it was a big deal. That's for sure. What happened is that piece came out in August of 1992 To contextualize it, it's worth just going back to January of 92. January of 92 was when Nirvana did Saturday Night Live for the first time, and it was also the week that Nevermind went to number one on the Billboard album chart, replacing a Michael Jackson album. So it was this peak moment of unprecedented accomplishment for any band from the punk world. (laughs) And um, that was also the moment when many of us, including me, realized that Kurt and Courtney were both using heroin. And um, within a, a couple of weeks, we did an intervention at Cedar sinai Hospital, and they both went into treatment. And this was exactly the week that Courtney realized she was pregnant. And, you know, we introduced her to the doctor that had delivered uh, uh, my first daughter and would deliver my son, a doctor named Paul Crane, who also worked out of Cedar sinai And he... Uh, took her on as a patient and rigorously supervised her um, behavior to make sure that, that she uh, got off of the uh, heroin and that, that the baby would be uh, healthy when born. And indeed, Frances Bean was healthy when she was born and she's healthy today. However, the Vanity Fair article came out about a week before Frances was born. And Vanity Fair is a celebrity magazine and doesn't never really covered rock and roll much. If they did did cover rock and roll, it would be kind of older artists like the Stones. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they were they were far from, right, right. Yeah, they were as far from cutting edge as you could be. Uh, Courtney got excited that uh, a writer there wanted to do a profile of her and you know, they had written a lot about Madonna and Courtney, even though she came out of punk rock, always really 
admired Madonna's uh, cultural power, independence, and success. And so I think the fact that Madonna had been Vanity Fair a lot made her feel uh, fun. Madonna can do it, I can do it. But, you know, the writer ended up um, having real contempt for her and Courtney and that uh, kind of writing about them as if they were just these damaged punk rock uh, cartoon figures. And uh, the article alleged that she had continued to shoot heroin uh, after she knew she was pregnant in a way that, you know, was, uh, you know, risking the health of her baby. And that's a horrible thing to accuse anyone of us. The people who said it were off the record. Uh, there was a quote from Courtney that seemed to indicate that, that Courtney denied. There's just no question about the reality. The reality is that she followed the doctor's advice and had a healthy baby. But uh, when the article came out, no one knew that. The Francis hadn't been born yet. And, um, oh, it was a shit storm. Yeah. So not only was it incredibly embarrassing and painful, uh, it actually triggered a legal uh, a process by the county of Los Angeles into whether or not they should even have custody of their own kid. You know, the Child's Protection or Child Services, or I forget the exact name of the department. And it was several months of going through different legal hoops and uh, letters from doctors and therapists and showing up, you know, reporting into city officials before before that threat to their own legal custody was uh, removed. A, a traumatic, traumatic thing for any yeah. parents to go through. Mm -hmm. uh, and you combine that with a level of uh, fame and visibility that went with it. Uh, and it definitely after that, there was a um, anxiety bordering on paranoia about the media, a discomfort with public scrutiny that uh, never completely left. So that was a, a definitely a turning point. And so I do devote, you know, kind of a lot of time to it. And, uh, you know, I think Courtney still looks at it as one of the main bummers of her life and career. It's, it's, it's just one of those things that uh, it does loom large in, in kind of the Nirvana story, even though it was a, it was a magazine profile about Courtney, Kurt was in it and it, it, it affected him uh, in the years to come uh, emotionally. It certainly made him more suspicious of, of, uh, of journalists that he didn't know. Yeah. So all through 1992 and 1993, Nirvana just continues to get bigger and bigger. It just seems like Kurt was just not really equipped to deal with the responsibility of such thin air. Um, you know, again, to, to bring up the B word, uh, he was alone in the primary responsibilities, as we've established, and therefore unable to escape or even share the load like, uh, you know, the Fab Four were able to do back in their day when they were that big. Well, yeah, there weren't other lead singers and other songwriters. So in that respect, yeah, the Beatles shared it in a different way. Chris and Dave shared a lot of the journey with Kurt. I mean, they did all the touring together, and they were um, significant parts of the, the story. I think the thing with Kurt was, um, you know, he had a heroin problem. I mean, fame was not his problem. Heroin was his problem. Uh, I think fame is confusing for people. Anybody, when they first get famous, and, you know, how to, how to understand the things that wouldn't have been noticed a year earlier, suddenly show up in newspaper articles. Uh, and uh, even if you have a, a set of legal situations where you have control over everything, you can't control your own ambition and your own desire to stay successful. And Kurt wanted to stay successful. There was no question about it. All the decisions he made after Nevermind 
included his desire to continue to have success, remixing the singles on In Utero, doing the unplugged. Pop, pop success. Releasing Incesticide as a kind of anthology of earlier work. At 24 years old, he's already anthologizing his early work. <laughs> you know, it's like Lord Byron. He was, um, you know, again, very conscious about the music videos, the interviews, the photos, every aspect of what they did after they became famous. He gave just as much attention to as he did beforehand. And he, he did not run away from being successful. There were things about being successful he didn't like, most particularly the scrutiny of his personal life. And he stressed himself out and he put pressure on himself that comes with trying to live up to a kind of success. But, you know, I, I feel he uh, had the intellect and talent to handle that. The problem was that killed him, in my opinion, was drug addiction. Yeah. All right, so in 1992, you took a job with Atlantic that would, in the end, see you as president, but you retain your managing of Curtin Courtney. Did that impact your working relationship at all? To be clear, I didn't stay managing whole. Courtney felt she needed another manager. She left Gold Mountain, the firm that I had started, uh, and went with uh, Qcron, uh, and they did a terrific job for whole. Um Current, however, Nirvana stayed with Gold Mountain and was fine with me um, doing, you know, the, the way things ended up, John Silva ended up sort of doing a lot of the day-to-day work for Nirvana, was the primary manager, but was closer to Chris and Dave and not personally as close to Kurt. And Kurt was making, like I said, almost all the decisions. And so I continued to play this role working with Kurt and working with Kurt kept me close to Courtney because they were together all the time. So it sounds weird in retrospect that I would be at this other record company and having a different job but still very involved with them. But it didn't seem weird at all at the time. It was the same human beings with the same kind of relationship. We would just have meetings in a different office. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's talk about uh, the Reading Festival performance. Um, and, and I want to bring it up because it's considered one of the best Nirvana performances of all time. It's on film and can easily be seen on YouTube. But more importantly, it really exhibits all that is the band. Uh, the incredible power of the songs and and the players themselves uh, is evident, but also the irreverent punk attitude that separated them in so many ways, because it all begins with an elaborate joke commenting on what was being published in the press, right? Well, Reading, um, the Reading Festival, you know, it's one of the big, big British festivals. They've been around for a long time, and Nirvana had done it a couple of years earlier, before they were event, before yeah. they were famous, mm-hmm. well, but right before Nevermind came out, they did a European tour with Sonic Youth and played an earlier set of Reading, which was also a, a fondly remembered set at a time when they were really really good. But they, Nevermind hadn't come out yet. By '92, Nevermind's become not only one of the biggest albums in America, but one of the biggest albums of the year in England, and they're the headliner at Reading. And, uh, you know, it was a festival in England, like what Coachella is here now, or, you know, it was like one of the big festivals there. And it took place, um, you know, a week or two after the Vanity Fair article came out. I, I have the exact dates in the book, but it was very, very soon after that. And um, there was also, around the same time, an article in Melody Maker, which is a British music weekly at the time that was pretty influential. They quoted a lot of the same unnamed sources saying a lot of the same things 
negatively about Courtney that were also in the Vanity Fair article. So there was actually a second piece in England that kind of rubbed echoing, salt, in, echoing these, rubbed uh, salt these. In, the, in the wound. Yeah. And there were all these rumors, you know, they had a British publicist named Anton Brooks who worked with them from the very first days of the first Sub Pop singles and who continued to be Nirvana's PR guy, you know, until Kurt died in, in England. And uh, he, um, he said that all the journalists were convinced that Nirvana was going to cancel because the press made it seem like Kurt was such a hopeless junkie and things were so disastrous. And the, and, and the rumors were rampant. He said, I kept telling them that I was just with the band and that they were going to play. And he said, nobody believed me. Uh, so uh, Kurt, um, well aware of the rumors flying around and these recent articles and furious about the disrespect to him as well as to his wife, um, had uh, this idea at the last minute to be wheeled on to stage in a wheelchair with him wearing a hospital gown, right. and and he um, it was just stuff and, that was and, like and a, and a blonde wig, <laughs> and and so he asked Anton to wheel him on, and Anton says, oh, "There's eighty thousand people there. I'm not going on stage." So there's a journalist that stayed friendly with Kurt and Courtney named Everett True, who wrote for, for competing British magazine, and who's also wrote a great book about Nirvana that's uh, almost as good as mine about Kurt. Uh, and so Everett agreed to wheel him on. And he um, he took the microphone and started saying, this is all in the video, like you said, it was all filmed. Yeah. And it's one of the best documents of Nirvana out there is the Reading Festival. And he sings the first couple of lines from that song, The Rose. Yeah, a Bette Midler song. Bette Midler yeah. had- Barely sang it, barely sang it. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and she played a <laughs> rock star who died of an OD, right. based kind of uh, fictitiously on Janis Joplin. And he sings the first line or two of The Rose, <laughs> kind of making fun of the whole caricature of him that was out there, and then left out of the wheelchair, and threw off the gown, and, you know, just, uh, you know, did this incredible, uh, performance. Oh, launches into breed, which just yeah. Ass. I mean, and then uh, you know, at the end of it, he asked everybody at the festival to say "I love you, Courtney," so they could tape it and play it for her. And uh, you know, it's a it's a virtuoso performance filled with humor, which was always a big part of how Kurt saw Nirvana was the the humor and kind of being a rock star and making fun of the idea of being a rock star at the same time. Yeah. That was, that was something he uniquely was able to, to pull off. And, uh, yeah, the Reading performance is incredible. And, uh, you know, uh, it was, uh, uh, even the members of the band were not sure a day or two before if this was all going to work, but they all came together and gave one of their best shows and happily it was filmed and recorded. So it's out there for people to, uh, to experience, and I watched it again when I was writing the book, and man, it's it's incredible. It's one of the great it's concerts incredible. on film that exists. Yeah. All right, using the power of Spotify, the current tastemaker, looking at the top 10 Nirvana songs by streams, there are three songs from Nevermind, three from the Unplugged performance, one from Bleach, and three from In Utero, and I believe you consider In Utero their best album. Well, it's just my personal favorite. You know, I, I think they're all wonderful albums. I admire all Nirvana albums. They're all valid, they're all really good, and they all have great songs on them. But I, I particularly love In Utero because it was to live through that with him, of him trying to figure out how to follow Nevermind 
and how to do it in a way that wasn't repetitive, uh, that, that honored his punk rock fans, but also honored his new mass audience. I just think it's such a tour de force, and I definitely feel those songs have the best lyrics that he ever wrote. So that's become my favorite album. And uh, Chris Novoselic told me it's his favorite Nirvana album also. So uh, I certainly like all the other records, but that one to me uh, has a special place in my heart. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, before reading the book, uh, you know, I, I would have uh, chosen Nevermind because that, that's the album that, you know, changed yeah. my life uh, Absolutely. And, and I get that but you know while reading the book and playing the songs I started to fall in love with uh, In Utero uh, beyond the big songs uh, and it then you know makes me ask the obligatory question you know where would the band have gone had Kurt gotten clean and able to control his inner demons I mean you know you do tell us he refused to ever seek therapy uh, to the underlying issues beyond drugs. He did end a rehab several times. Um, um, but do you think he would have grown up uh, tired of the junkie life and, and been with us 25 years on today? I, I have no idea. I, I, um, uh, it, it's just there's too many hypotheticals in there to yeah. that my brain can grasp. I think that if he were alive, he would still be making great art. I don't know whether it would be with Nirvana, whether he would do solo, Dave would do Foo Fighters, and then every few years they would do Nirvana. I don't know what kind of songs it would be, but I know they would be great. I think that he had the soul and the brain of a great artist and that he would always be uh, changing the way Dylan or Bowie or other artists like that keep reinventing themselves and staying fresh and that he would have been one of those artists. But uh, exactly what it would be, I have no idea. Uh, you know, but but there's no question in my mind that if he were alive, he'd still be doing things that were important artistically. Yeah. So it all ends on April 5th, 1994, 25 years ago, when Kurt Cobain takes his own life. Obviously, after so many years, um, and this book proves it, you miss him almost like a father would. Well, I sure love them, you know, uh, that's for sure. And Doing the book connected me with that love in a way that I'm really grateful for. And that was another byproduct of the experience of doing it. Um, you know, I do have two kids of my own. That's a very particular relationship to actually be someone's father. I don't look at myself that way with Kurt, but but I do look at him as, as a friend and a great, beautiful person who uh, I uh, love in a unique way. So, of all the musical geniuses that you have had the immense pleasure of working with, was was Kurt your favorite? Well, I think he's the most talented. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say there are people I'm closer to. I mean, Steve Earle I've worked with for 19 years. He yeah. is like a brother. I have a depth of a relationship with him that I could never achieve with Kurt. First of all, Steve's been sober all that time. And secondly, it's 19 years. So, you know, I, I wouldn't say he's person I was the closest to just because we only had a few years together and he was on drugs a lot of that time but he's definitely I feel the most talented person that I've ever produced and of that short list he's the one I got to, to work with yeah, I think uh, in your book, uh, you know, there's a moment where uh, you talk with Robert Hilburn, uh, who puts an article out, and maybe uh, there is some confusion on, on what was said. Uh, Robert calls you back uh, and says, hey, I kind of feel used. You feel bad about it. But in the end, 
Robert says, well, Kurt's a genius, and so I don't feel that bad about it. And uh, I think all three of us would agree that he definitely was on that short list of uh, musical geniuses of the latter half of the 20th century. He was, and it just also says what a great guy Robert Gilbert was. For people who don't know, he was a longtime uh, music editor of the Los Angeles Times. He retired from that, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years ago. Years ago. Yeah, yeah. And subsequently wrote a terrific biographies of Johnny Cash and of Paul Simon, but when he was at the LA Times, he was one of the key sort of journalistic tastemakers in rock and roll for several decades, and uh, I don't think, it, there are others that cared about the artists, but no one cared more about them than, than Bob did, and um, a lot of people would not have reacted that way to being misled. You know, he said to me, uh, he said, I feel used which I totally had used, and I, I asked him to do an interview with Kurt and Courtney around the time we were trying to uh, create a, a new um, look at them after the Vanity Fair article, and you know, kind of let the child services people in LA just see that the LA Times was speaking favorably about them and all that, and and I didn't tell him any of those those were all secrets. Those were not known at the time. And then he found out about it from another writer. He said, I really feel used. And I just didn't have anything to say to him because I, I totally, exactly tried to manipulate things the way he was accusing me of. And I was just stunned. I didn't say anything for about a minute. And then he says, well, I guess if I'm going to be used, it might as well be the help of genius. And then, when I, and then about 20 years later, I said, do you still feel that way? He said, absolutely. You know, yeah. uh, but that's Bob Hilbert. There's not many like him. No, no. We, we, we had the pleasure of interviewing Bob for his book uh, on Paul Simon. Uh, one last subject I want to touch on is, is Kurt's uh, insistence to remain connected to his underground scene. He produced an album for the Melvins, uh, their best-selling album to date, Houdini, and he tirelessly promoted other bands like Flipper. Um, he did do a lot for the community uh, where he and Nirvana spawned, right? Yeah, that was just, you know, incredibly important to all the members of the band to honor their roots. And they used every, when they did Saturday Night Live, they all wore T-shirts. Uh, one was a flipper and one was uh, Melvin's, I think. Uh, uh, every tour they did, they would give the opening acts lots to punk bands that could never get on stages that big. Uh, in interviews, he talked about them. Uh, he, uh, uh, you know, he would show up on, um, uh, you know, indie labels doing a, you know, a song on a Wipers tribute album, or um, wrote the liner notes for a Raincoats album, and you know, you know, he was uh, that was as important to him as any political views he had was to be supportive of this subculture that had so inspired him when he was. Yeah, again, that was something that the three of them totally shared. All three of the band members did that, but Kurt had the loudest megaphone, and and he, uh, that was just part of his DNA. Yeah. Um, finally, and your book ends with this as well. Having an, enough experience myself with drugs and drug addicts, there was nothing anyone could do uh, unless the person in trouble wants to first do something about it themselves. I agree with you that all the Monday morning quarterbacking didn't and doesn't help. You were there as best you could be there, and any more of one thing or the other probably wouldn't have made a difference, right? Well, there's no way of knowing, and uh, this is not just true of people who work with famous artists or celebrities who kill themselves. It's true with 
anybody that has anyone who's a friend or family member who kills himself. Uh, and there's unfortunately tens of thousands of people a year do it. I think the last year in the United States was 60,000 people, of which half of those were with guns. Yeah, um, I think you said in 2015, 800,000 people worldwide. World, worldwide, yeah, globally. So, you know, uh, it, it's a huge psychological issue for the human race. And people that are close to or love people who kill themselves, whether they're famous or not, whether they're geniuses or not, uh, I think most of us always wonder, gee, what if I had tried a little harder to find another therapist? Uh, what if I had uh, hung out a little bit more with them? What if I had uttered this sentence or had that idea? You know, I think it's sort of you have to kind of be made of ice to not have those feelings. And I have them. I I still sometimes uh, just wish I had uh, tried some other things because I just wish he was still with us. But I think objectively, based on everything that medicine knows, that psychologists know, and that human experience knows, is what you said I believe is true, that if people uh, have to want to help, they have to want to live. You can give them a support system medically and psychologically and spiritually, but it has to come from them and some people uh, just uh, for reasons that no one seems to understand end up being killing themselves. You know, it's, it's definitely not a mystery that it's medical science or psychology or religion or philosophy has solved over the centuries. So I do think that that's the truth. And I think it's important for people who have loved ones that have killed themselves to know that. It's not uh, anyone else's... Uh, fault except the person who kills himself but uh, meanwhile while someone's still alive there is a moral obligation to do every single thing you can do to try to talk them into uh, acting positively and not negatively and if they're alcoholics or drug addicts to try to get them to get uh, into I'm a big believer in 12 step programs the people that I know that have come out the other end have 90% of them that was what got them there you know, and, and so you do everything you can while they're alive, but if, if, if you're unfortunate enough to love someone who killed himself, I think you have to honor the truth that you really can't uh, keep someone else alive. They have to keep themselves alive. You can help them, but it's ultimately up to them. Well, I appreciate um, those sentiments, uh, having gone through something like that myself. Uh, I think uh, a lot in our audience, those that have suffered uh, a close suicide by a friend or family member um, would feel the same way. So, um, Danny Goldberg, um, it's been an immense pleasure having you on Deeper Digs and Rock with us today. Thanks so much. I'm going to run. Bye bye. Big shout out to Danny Goldberg for spending time with us. 
<laughs> so much more we can talk about. And I promise to try to get him back for another episode to talk about all the rabbit holes I purposefully walked by to focus on the new book. Kurt Cobain continues to be an icon of the highest order in the rock and roll pantheon. His songs and the band Nirvana did change music overnight. Interestingly, I'd say it killed my career of trying to be a rock and roll recording artist. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I know now we didn't have what it takes, but I was a part of that sunset music scene in L.A. before Nirvana broke wide. And because of Nevermind, I knew we as an act were passe and either needed to evolve or die. Uh, let's just say the others disagreed. So I left soon afterwards. There just aren't many days where you can point a finger and say, aha, this is where history changed. And as Danny said, maybe it wasn't an actual day, say like February 9th, 1964. But within a few months, I can tell you, at least in the L.A. music scene, it was a seismic change and good for it. It cleaned out the garbage stinking up the town with wannabe models in Aquanet hairdos, tight spandex, and barely a thing to say in song. Oh, all that needed to die and deserved the quick death it got. Obviously, I'm saddened that Cobain ended his own life by suicide. I know what this causes for those around him, uh, those closest I lived through a stepson's suicide from a previous marriage. Like Cobain, my stepson's death ends up being just another bloody statistic. So yeah, chuck up living through a suicide and a mass shooting. Yay me. Though, given the America we now live in, I don't think I am as rare a creature as one would hope. Anyway... I know how Danny must have felt, and obviously is still feeling 25 years on. We both wish we could have done more. We know in our minds we did the best anyone could, but in our hearts we still wonder if we could have done something different. If you know someone in despair, someone unable to escape their demons or monkey on the back, please do all that you can think you can do. Get involved, but if it does turn to tragedy, it's not your fault. You'll be able to live with yourself. Okay, do go out and get Serving the Servant, Remembering Kurt Cobain by the one and only Danny Goldberg. You'll thank me later. Next week, I promise to be my cheery old self as we dive into the Rolling Stones in New York City. I will be talking with Christopher McKittrick all about his new book, Can't Give It Away on 7th Avenue, The Rolling Stones and New York City, which will uh, interestingly be the day after I get to see the world's greatest septuagenarian rock and roll band. <laughs> so until then... Don't worry about me. I'll feel better. I'll get, I'll get through this. And let's all keep up the rockin'.
looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at The RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at R and R Archaeology.